out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of Vanessa Briscoe-Hay, one-time, well, singer of Cylon, also Supercluster, and now the Cylon Reenactment Society, all the way from Atlanta, Georgia. Anyway, this is the interview, and after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to the very exciting subject that was the, um, yes, the formative years, so we're going to find out much, much more. But anyway... Vanessa, tell us about those early years. It's over to you. You know, I've always been interested in music, and music has been all around me uh, from an early age. My parents were country and Western um, music fans. My father actually um, saw Hank Williams Sr. twice in Nashville, um, you know, at the Ryman. And, you know, so there were a lot of Sun records, and um, they had gospel records and whatnot and you know he ruled the television or telly as you say (laughs) on Saturday afternoons on his day off and it was one Nashville inspired show after another um and culminating you know in (laughs) hee-haw and so you know he enjoyed it and um then I got a piano lessons and um I wasn't very good and a few years after that I switched to uh being in the uh high school marching band when I was really just in the seventh grade, Uh, but we didn't have very many people. So they brought in everybody they could. I played flute. And um, I think at that era, like sixth, seventh grade, um, there were a lot of singles being played. Um, I was born in 55. uh, So 65, 66, 67. I was into a lot of the British invasion bands, you know, yes. like, of course, the Beatles. And uh, I take my little allowance and go to the Five and Dime, and they had these multi packs of singles, uh, and they always had a good one on top. And <laughs> the others below that, you didn't know what you were going to get. You know, I think they were just trying to get rid of them. And Lucky uh, me. I, found some <laughs> I found some interesting things. Um, we also had a TV station um, in uh, Atlanta at the time that uh, on week, weekend nights, like late, um, I want to say 67, 68, 69, sometime through then it started, that they made homemade videos for the uh, singles of the day. Oh. And <laughs> it was a show called Now Explosion, and it was a UHF channel. UHF had just come into uh, being, uh, and we were really fascinated by it because, you know, before that, I grew up between Atlanta and Athens, Georgia, you know, out in the country at the time. Now it's a metropolitan area, mm. and it's a suburb of Atlanta. Uh, but we only got three stations and when we had the UHF added, uh, which was very early on Turner Broadcasting, and then there was an independent station in Atlanta, which was this one, and they made these really freaky videos. They had uh, people that would dance and they'd run these big video loops, you know, almost like the tape loops for uh, <laughs> Dr. Hugh or whatever. And, uh, 
you know, make all this mirroring and imaging and really um, freak out kind of thing. And at that point in time, Atlanta was one of the centers of hippiedom um, down on 14th, 17th Street. You know, we got to see my uncle in Atlanta. He lived there, uh, who worked for a dental company. And my mother would go, okay, we're about to drive through the hippies. Roll up the windows and lock the doors. It's <laughs> <laughs> wow. if they would want to get in, you know, to this uh, car full of, you know, picks or whatever. Uh, but, you know, there were a lot of kids who were attracted to Atlanta, you know, during that movement. It didn't just go on in um, San Francisco or New York. There were regional scenes like Atlanta and the Atlanta International Pops Festival. I just wanted to go so bad. Um, it was like below Atlanta, uh, I think between Atlanta and Macon. And they had uh, Jimi Hendrix and, you know, all these bands that I wanted to see that I'd heard on this late night Chicago radio station um, that I could pick up at night. It was kind of the advent of the FM stations as well, um, where they would play album cuts and cuts that were much longer than the singles, which I loved when I was younger. So that's the first place I heard Jimi Hendrix. And also, uh, I think they played all Sergeant Pepper's band, you know, <laughs> they, they played uh, the entire record <clears throat> and everybody listened, you know, so I had my little headphones on under the covers wow. and I could hear Jimi Hendrix and it was, what is this? This is just like from another planet, you know, um, just the way everything was. And then of course, when I went to college, uh, I got into other things. I found out about Bob Dylan. <laughs> <laughs> I was kind of a latecomer to Bob Dylan. I didn't know, you know, he'd written, you know, like uh, Blowing in the Wind. I, you know, I had no idea. I thought that was Peter, Paul, and Mary. What did I know? <laughs> <laughs> yes, so that was quite, yes, it was quite a, a sort of scene. So then, because from the UK, you know, and also, you know, I was very young at the time, so I had no idea. But, you know, we get that kind of impression that, you know, you had San Francisco and the, the sort of the hippie scene, and then you had the, the New York scene, which had sort of Andy Warhol and the Velvet Underground, which I suppose in reality was very small, in, you know, in fact, I think record sales. And then that, that kind of nugget scene as well, which was kind of early punk and then the Stooges and MC5. So obviously, you know, we often don't really understand what goes on in between those two, two places in this kind of vast country, which is America, really. Yes, and the UK, uh, in, in some respects, you're very lucky um, with the press, with the radio, and with the TV, and that it's, like, I think your country could fit almost <laughs> inside of my state of Georgia. But it's, it's centralized, and, and London is an international city. Um, so um, everything's very centralized. But y'all had a breakdown where things became uh, more about regionalism. I think in the 70s and 80s, like we did too, you know, like uh, Leeds came to the forefront, you know, with like the Mekons and the Gang of Four. Oh, yes. And, <laughs> and it was like Ohio. Uh, gave us, uh, you know, like Devo and Para Ubu and, uh, you know, Minneapolis had a scene. There's a scene in the Northwest and um, here, you know, in Georgia. Um, so uh, 
you know, it was, you know, we, we had a lot of different sayings and it was all about doing it yourself. And so I think that speaks to the heart of what C86 is yes. right there. Well, it, yes, absolutely. And then, I mean, because, because then, you know, obviously there was this, the, the glam explosion and people who were sort of part of that 60s scene, it's interesting how one scene, and I suppose we're very, you know, the formative years when we're in our late teens, especially in early 20s, you know, but once we sort of move in, into the mid 20s, you know, the next generation comes along and they want their thing. So interesting with, you know, I spoke to quite a few people from the 60s and wondered why, why they sort of disappeared and they didn't sort of keep being in the zeitgeist, I suppose. And I think quite a lot of them just, it's a bit like, actually, we were a bit tired. We'd been doing something like we were in that for five years and eventually you just need to have a break and then suddenly the new kids come on you know like the glam and they almost can't understand it even though at the time when they were five, five years before were so radical suddenly they find it's like no David Bowie and all this kind of makeup stuff and all this glam you know we can't we can't relate to that we we want denim and long hair and Jimi Hendrix guitar solos we can't deal with this kind of frivolousness and then you know punk came along and again that's that even makes people you know, not kind of every generation knocks the next generation off, doesn't it, really? Because they almost look a bit, yeah, bye, granddad. You know, you've you've had your moment. So I just wondered, oh, yeah. I just <laughs> Go ahead. Seven, <laughs> so I wondered how the 70s were for you. Well, um, in the 70s, when I got to college, uh, you know, I was an art major. And uh, a lot of the things that we were hearing, uh, you know, in the radio around, it was like... Uh, rediscovery of the roots of uh, American music. So what they call Americana now was very big on campus, like uh, Graham Parsons, the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band. And, uh, you know, in my childhood, I'd heard, uh, you know, homemade instruments, you know, right next to my grandmother, there were some people who had their own instruments that they played on the porch on Saturday. And, uh, you know, I got that. In my hometown, there was a band called the Skillet Lickers who were among the earliest recorded country artists back in the 20s. So, and there was a long tradition of that. Um, but when I got to college, uh, you know, I uh, started listening to uh, more things. I actually uh, had a, what you call a sweet tooth for prog rock. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. And uh, and uh, there's a, you know it's a bit of an overblown spectacle with that you know Rick Wakeman with his cape and you know all of these things and uh, you know all these kind of mystical things I, I thought it was just fun um, but when I heard Patti Smith and the Ramones and Television and Blondie um, and in our own hometown, we had our own band, the B-52s. I got to see them almost from the beginning. I didn't see their first couple of shows, but I saw their first club show. Yes. Um, things just exploded. And we had a record store in town called Chapter 3 that brought in things uh, that were very interesting. So I would buy a lot of things. And, uh, you know, just if I liked the cover art, you know, I've always bought singles. And so that changed. And so, you know, in Atlanta, a lot of these bands would go and play. Um, so, you know, got to see Elvis Costello in a very small um, ballroom in Atlanta. 
and he he didn't even have stage or riser he was like right on the floor and i got within you know like two or three people of him but i didn't want to get any closer you know than that because i could just feel the tremendous energy uh coming from there uh, so I wanted to stand back and enjoy every song. And of course, you know, Blondie opened for the Kink at the Fox. And uh, that was a great show. Uh, so we had great show over the Talking Heads. And, you know, then of course, B-52s. Uh, once they got out of, out of town and started playing in New York, people in New York had never seen anything quite like that. I mean, it just exploded. And a lot of our friends were driving to New York to go to these shows. Uh, um, really, there was uh, a lot of expats from the uh, art program in Athens, Georgia, who lived in New York and uh, would host parties for us and they would come and see our shows. So yeah. it was like a little pipeline between us and New York. Uh, we actually played Pylon, my band, actually played uh, uh, clubs in the Northeast before we ever did in Atlanta. Right. Well, blimey. Yeah, it's quite funny you mentioned prog rock because my brother was seven years older than me. And so his formative period, and he was going to university, it was kind of, you know, Yes and Genesis and Wishbone Ash and Barkley James Harvest, the whole, and Rick Wakeman's solo work. And I was quite young at the time, and I just used to sneak into his room and find these records with the Roger Dean covers and sort of play them, because he, he forbid me to go into his room and play the records, so obviously you do. And was mesmerised by the whole kind of like, wow, this is kind of weird. But then, you know, after a while, you, you know, because what was in the charts was kind of like a lot of disco and a lot of top 20 stuff which is kind of pretty awful mostly apart from the odd little thing so prog rock was quite exciting but then obviously as these sort of 70s progressed and then the 80s you know one wanted to go back to slightly more urgent songs rather than topographic oceans which was like four songs on four sides wasn't it you know 20 minute songs were just too much really so look yeah. when did you yeah, find yeah. your when did you find your vocal? When did you sort of think, <laughs> oh, okay, I'm I'm sort of going to step step from the from the crowd into the onto the uh, stage? Well, uh, I had never planned to be uh, a singer. Uh, I sang in the high school choir and the church choir, some too, but I was never a soloist. Uh, I sang alto, so I did a lot of harmony. And, you know, kind of in the back. And if they didn't have enough guys, I could go low enough. I could sing with the baritones. Um, but, you know, uh, my friends uh, from art school, uh, Randy Billy and Michael Husky, uh, we were in, an, uh, Michael and I were in an independent study class uh, with a professor named Robert Croker. Uh, he had decided, you know, he knew for, political reasons this was going to be his last year teaching at UGA so 1977 which is also the year uh, the B-52 started into 1978 he threw it all in he went everywhere with us we were doing 100 drawings a week um, we chase ambulances and fire trucks and make drawings and <laughs> it was it was just great you know we'd go and find the cheapest pictures of beer and um, sit around and have these long discussions. He had uh, student parties at his house that were just outrageous. The last one he threw uh, right before he left, it was called the 24-hour party. 
Excellent. Because it lasts the 24 hours. So, uh, um, you know, through, through that, I met Michael and Randy. And uh, Michael, uh, the way I got to talking to him, he was just the coolest guy in the world, I swear. Um, and he wasn't like the top, you know, I, I was just kind of a very plain kind of spoken, soft-spoken, shy person. He wasn't the, exactly the type of person I'd be hanging out with, but we came, became very fast friends. And this is how it happened. At Critique, he had done these beautiful drawings and they were on the floor. And one of them had a footprint on it. And um, a couple of uh, our classmates were standing around going, hmm, well, I think that the composition would be much better if the footprint was over here. And the other one was going, oh, there might be more interaction, you know, and um, tension if the footprint was over here. And I walked up behind him and I said, how can a footprint be in the wrong place? And Michael's head just snapped around and he looked at me and um, he realized I was a kindred spirit because he was, had a very playful, kind of almost mischievous uh, spirit, very super intelligent guy, very urbane. And um, we became really good friends after that. And so his roommate was Randy. So in the fall of 78, Randy decided that he wanted to form a band and go to New York, get written up once on New York Rocker, which was this magazine they subscribed to. And uh, they started practicing. I mean, Randy really had to talk Michael into it because Michael was like, it's already been done, it's over. You know, there's so many bands, you know, whatever. And uh, so Randy talked him into it. And, they decided on instruments. At first, Randy was just going to play uh, drums, and Michael picked bass because it looked easy, and uh, it wasn't working out. So they switched to uh, Randy picked up guitar and taught himself to play guitar, and uh, they were droning on and on and on and on, doing all these endless riffs with a little bit of change. Well. This art studio that we're practicing in, right upstairs, the landlord who had rent, you know, rented these top two floors in a building, which was easy at the time because all these businesses have moved out of downtown Athens to the mall. So the space was super cheap. Curtis, who was the landlord, heard him, you know, through the floor. He was hanging out with his friend Bill Tabor. I'm probably on a mattress that didn't have a sheet on it, probably smoking pot. I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> he could hear it through the floor downstairs. And um, Bill and Curtis discussed it and said, sounds like they need a drummer. And Curtis said, well, I'm a drummer. So he went downstairs and knocked at the door and went, hey, you guys, you want a drummer? And uh <laughs> it was just like a miracle that appeared because they, that was the next step. And uh, he dragged his drums in and they started practicing together. And then um, they were like at the point, okay, we've got some songs. We need a vocalist, you know, to make this art project work. And uh, they tried out a couple of guys who didn't work out. I don't know why. And they 
were right on the verge of using found sounds, like they had one uh, that was a record, teach your parakeet to talk, and I said things like, hello, how are you today? Hello, you know, and they were using that for the vocals. And they actually got a tape put on before the bees played. Well, they went, you know, this just, you know, this isn't gonna work out. We're gonna run out of stuff like this. So let's ask Vanessa, she's our friend. And so they invited me to come in. I mean, Randy had mentioned it before and I didn't take him seriously. Um, so he mentioned it to me and he came into where I was actually working at the time. And he said, would you like to come and audition for our band tonight? And I thought about it. I just, you know, uh, I graduated college and uh, 1978, and I was hanging around Athens, uh, waiting for my first husband to get out of college. And uh, so I was like, well, okay, well, that sounds like fun. And uh, he explained the premise, and I was like, this isn't going to take too much time out of my life. Because at the time, you thought, you know, when you graduated college, you were going to move out of the college town and get an adult job somewhere. Yes. And that's kind of what I was waiting for. And uh, so I went in and auditioned and um, they explained the premise. And I tried some of these lyrics they had typed up. Um, I could barely hear what I was doing because it was so loud. And I just tried to make the lyrics fit. and. Uh, then they said, thank you very much. And <clears throat> I went home and I was like, well, what was that about? <laughs> and the next day, <laughs> the next day they called me up and they said, you're in. So we started practicing. And um, two weeks later, we had our first show about chapter three records and um, people just stood there. They were like, what is this? And, uh, you know, we practiced some more, we played some more shows uh, at houses, like house parties or whatever. And uh, maybe the fourth or fifth show, um, we played this house out in the country and the windows were open. It was warm, you know, that spring and come on. And um, the B-52s came and they went, whoa and they just started dancing all over the place and everybody and the you know that was there went wow you can dance to this <laughs> <laughs> yes. and so they you know the wind started moving in out of the rooms like it was uh speakers you know the rooms became big speakers and uh they said you've got to come to new york and so they helped us get our uh, first show in New York City through one of their friends. He was the doorman at the med club, Robert Malmer. So uh, we got booked into Hurrah. Uh, Hurrah offered us uh, several bands to open for. And um, we were here and I'm going, nah, we don't want to open for that band. I mean, who were we to say that? Here's this <laughs> huge club in New York. <laughs> They're offering, offering us an opening spot. And uh, then they said, uh, well, how about the Gang of Four? And we were like, yeah, 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 yeah. We want to open for them. Uh, <laughs> we have their single, you know, uh, the one that has damaged goods on it, you know, the red one. And so uh, um, we 
uh, on the basis of that, a friend of ours got us a booking in Philadelphia opening for them. And then we got a job, uh, you know, opening. Well, no, we got, I think maybe we were the headliners <laughs> at the Rad in Boston. I don't mean, you know, this is like ridiculous. This is like, we hadn't even played more than like six shows or whatever. And we were going to New York. And so <clears throat> we didn't end up breaking up. I'm going to make, cut the story short there. Uh, we got a written up an interview magazine by Glenn O'Brien in his column Beat. And uh, he said, uh, you know, he really liked us. And he gave us about half the space of the review, you know, like Gang of Four got a, uh, you know, big paragraph. And then he gave us a little paragraph right after that and talked about how much he liked us. And he said, uh, they sound like they eat dub for breakfast. And we didn't know what that meant. So we wrote a song about it. Yes, this is your first <laughs> single, isn't it? Called Dub, yeah. Seven Inch on Caution Records, which is, um, so So obviously did it, it seems like it was kind of started as a bit of an art project. And then, and then I suppose with most projects, they don't really go that far, do they? You, you know, mostly, most bands just play in front of their friends and family and anybody else they can emotionally blackmail to see them. So actually, you managed to progress very quickly because I think, see, in the UK, we, you know, tiny little country, isn't it? Let's face it. But we had those gatekeepers. So if you hit one of those gatekeepers, you kind of went to the next stage very quickly. So we had, you know, the music press was the NME, Melody Maker Sounds, you know, this DJ called John Peel. So John Peel played. And every town would have an indie, you know, alternative night. Um, you know, mostly on a Monday or Wednesday or, you know, you know, in the sort of dead part of the week, I suppose. And so you could get, you know, a gig in Norwich or Ipswich or Cambridge or, you know, Oxford, Leicester, Glasgow. Or, you know, you get the gist. Don't you? Um, so, yeah, you, you kind of can progress sometimes. But obviously, in America, you managed to sort of progress very quickly getting out of your town and, and into New York, supporting, you know, quite sort of major bands, really. Yes, yes, we did. And um, <laughs> I just don't know really how it happened, but uh, it was so much fun. We just decided to keep doing it as long as, you know, it was fun. To yes, us. well, absolutely. <laughs> and obviously, you know, most, most projects don't, you know, if they don't really go anywhere, most people just think, actually, I'm going to go and do something else. But you, you know, you brought the your first album out, sort of 2000, no, 1980. <laughs> so, 1980. So yeah. that was kind of a quite a pivotal moment because we, you know, we had the sort of the punk scene and obviously after a few years, a bit like the hippie scene, it starts to fade, you know, without the Charles Manson murders. But then, you know, you know, you start getting some terrible punk. Then you get the post-punk and that was, you know, your Gang of Four and, you know, Magazine and Peel and, you know, bands like the Nightingales. And then the indie world starts to appear in the 80s, doesn't it? So this is where, this is where you hit your moment, the 80s, which is kind of the, the great decade where things start to change. Because in this country, you know, we, you know, <coughs> Ma Margaret Thatcher gets in power of 79. There's a huge amount of unemployment. And a lot of people, you know, especially young people, sort of decide to sort of just claim the dole and job seekers loan. So it kind of gives you that almost like a grant to, you know, basically drink a lot, smoke a lot, and then a lot of people form bands. And from that, there was, you know, this kind of a lot, a lot of kind of musical kind of, uh, yeah, outfits appeared. So, so what was your memory of sort of thinking, right, we've done the single, we've done all these gigs, 
and now we've got the album. You know, was the band moving very fast as a creative unit? Yes, uh, we were moving pretty fast. Uh, I would say that uh, uh, we got shows in Atlanta. We started being booked to open for bands that came to Atlanta through whatever person to go. They're four piece. They're not too complicated. Probably is what they're saying to themselves, and they're sort of popular around here. Let's get them. Uh, so we opened for PIL. Uh, we opened for, of course, the B-52s. Uh, B-52s and Talking Heads on their first U.S. tour, they went together. When they got to Atlanta, they split and had separate nights. So we got to open for both of those. We got to open for Lana Levitch in New York. Uh, we got to, and she's so really nice. And uh, <clears throat> I don't know. I could just like if I made a list of everybody we played with it would be like kind of overwhelming to think about um but we made you know uh friends and we got to see a lot of things uh the downtown uh New York scene um the, it was like Athens in a way but amplified there was a big connection between art and music um so uh did you ever play places like CBGB's, the Mud Club, or Maxis, Kansas City, or um, is it Tier 3? Did you play any of those kind of venues? Yes, we played uh, <clears throat> CBGB's. Um, there was a week in 1980 that we played seven shows on seven days, and six of them were in the New York area. You could get away with that back then. Uh, because they were kind of in different neighborhoods or areas. So uh, we play CBGB's and the Mud Club and Hurrah and um, I think TR3 as well. Um, I'd have to go back and look. Yes. And then we played Maxwell's and Hoboken. Uh, wow. Because, uh, like, uh, you know, mm. <clears throat> so at TR3, uh, the guy running the door was John Bascat. You know, it's a very <laughs> famous painter. <laughs> yes. You know, it's just, uh, uh, Surreal. you know, all the artists. Uh, one of my friend, dear friends from up there, uh, she's a writer, Karen Moline. Uh, her boyfriend actually made uh, Andy Warhol screen prints. So I got to meet a little bit of those people. Um, we played with John Cale in Athens. Um, I don't know. In uh, New York, there was just a lot going on. Soho, uh, the art scene was incredible. <clears throat> it was so great to go up there and look at all the art. And uh, I'm trying to think. Um, oh, we met Keith Herring, too. Um, he actually, one of our songs recently was chosen to be on this compilation that came out with the retrospective. Um, his first major European retrospective uh, actually, I think, took place, place last year, and they put out uh, Soul Jazz, put out uh, a compilation. And so yes. <laughs> they were on a compilation with Yoko Ono and uh, Jazzy Jeff and all these great things. But we met him, and he loved Pylon, and I think he was he was also a DJ, DJ and he um, I think his boyfriend was a DJ too. So they played us, 
yes. were one of the bands that he liked. Yes. So when you, I mean, were you also feeling at that point, because again, it's quite a short sort of um, apprenticeship, were you sort of developing your stage persona and your voice and your sort of confidence as this is something that you're now doing? Well, you know, everything uh, for us always came about, uh, we didn't have any preconceived notions about what was going to make a song, what to write a song about, how the song was going to go. We got together and pretty much uh, created it or produced it together. Now, I might take uh, um, a tape home and try to come up with lyrics. My whole um, way that I tried to do it is I tried to find the place in the song for me that was inside the machinery of the song. Uh, it might involve, I might echo the guitar line or I might find some spaces uh, that they weren't uh, or I might find uh, some uh, spaces and times that, you know, laid on top of them. And so it was just like developing uh, was just, uh, like anything else, if the more you do it, uh, the more you can see that you can do and um, learn about it. It's kind of fascinating, you know, songwriting. Things come into your head. I mean, yes. who knows? Well, for, um, I mean, if, if we knew, we would do it more often, right? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I suppose, you know, the stars kind of lined up on that point, didn't they, really? Because then, you know, often... You know, what I found during this show is that most bands have a kind of a four to five year narrative. And this is mostly the UK, I guess. Um, well, other bands, you know, people get together, they have that 12 months where they're sort of the honeymoon period. They, you know, they're sort of jamming away, they're making a bit of a sound. And then <laughs> they, they create that song, which they think, right, that's going to be the single. And, and again, in the UK, you know, we had John Peel. So if it was a bit weird and quirky, you know, John Peel just loved that kind of stuff. So that would give them that kind of, oh my God, we're on radio, you know, Radio One, the BBC. And often there was a John Peel session as well, where you'd go down to London and get, you know, the proper, you know, Abbey Road and get four tracks recorded and that gave bands that kind of next bit of thinking this is brilliant and then sort of more gigs around the country the first album things going really well the tricky second album which i found is when a lot of bands are beginning to find it a bit difficult keeping it together and in the uk any you know it's often the thing that really breaks a band apart from the second album or third is tour in America. That's when they often say, oh yeah, well, it was kind of going okay, but we went to America and then they always say, we came back and split up. And it's like, it just finished us off. You know, I mean, there were a few people who enjoyed it. So obviously, you know, that, that's, that's a bit simplified, but I have heard that story quite a lot really. Because often after, you know, four, five years, you know, there's, there's kind of a lot of tensions within the band and also an amazing lack of money as well. So I think people are a bit, still sleeping on those mattresses on the floor, feeling a bit slightly, I'm getting a bit old for this now. So how did you, when you were making the second album, were you feeling that it was still fun or were you feeling that you were going to be calling it a day quite soon? Um, no, while we were making the second album, um, uh, we were still having fun, but you know how that process started. Uh, we were touring a lot, you know, a lot more, than you would think. And we actually, you know, enjoyed it because we took care of ourselves when we were on the road. It was extremely cheap to live in Athens. So, um, 
you know, pretty early on, we gave up sleeping on floors and we spent that extra room. It might be all of us in one hotel room with a rollaway bed or whatever. Um, but we were in a hotel. We always tried to eat one good meal a day uh, somewhere. And we would make a point while we were on tour to go see something um, that we wanted to see. We were really geeky, nerdy kids with cameras around our necks. And let's go see the Grand Canyon or the White House or go to the National Gallery, you know, or there's the Peach Boys. Let's go see it. And, uh, you know, shooting home movies and, you know, doing all of that. And uh, we were kind of a self-contained unit. We had a, a sound person, Papa Shard. Um, so um, we didn't have any of that really, but what we didn't have enough of was time um, because we spent, some, you know, two or three weeks at a time on the road. And you're right, long distances. We drove out to California three or four times. And I mean, it takes an entire day to drive across the state of Texas. It really does. Yes. And uh, not, there are not many places you can play on the way out there. There were some in Texas and, you know, there were some in Birmingham, Alabama, New Orleans, and, uh, you know, further west, not a whole lot. And then you get to California and there were places you could play. And not really anything back then in the Northeast, I mean, in the Northwest, because I wanted to go to Seattle. And our West Coast booking guy said, well, I can get you to Seattle, but there's nothing between San Francisco and there for you to play. And once you get there, there's nowhere for you to play. So this like predated the whole Seattle scene, you know, yes. which really got big a few years later. <clears throat> so we're touring. Um, we've got songs to start making the second record. And so we went into a big state-of-the-art studio in Atlanta. Um, it, it was called Christian Broadcasting. It's actually a studio that they used to record, uh, record, you know, big choirs and whatnot. So it was enormous. And uh, we had the same guy. He was wonderful. Uh, Bruce Baxter is the engineer and, um, you know, mixer and all of that. Um, but um, I think it was Randy that was like, you know, he's good, but, you know, what we need is a producer, somebody that can give us some direction, because his whole uh, way of working with us was to just turn it on, just record us, you know, he right. didn't really, you know, uh, go way further with it than that, and uh, so um, DB Records, Danny Beard, um, he would put out our single on our first album and uh, also, uh, you know, uh, he, I guess Randy must have talked to him. I can't remember how it happened. He got Chris Damey from the DBs uh, to do uh, the production. I don't know where that idea came from, but I love the DBs uh, and uh Gene Holder was the engineer, and they were like, look, there's this little studio in North Carolina near Winston-Salem uh, that R.E.M. has been recording in. It's basically Mitch Easter's uh, garage. And so we went from this giant studio to this tiny studio, but whenever you add other players in the mix who also have their own project, it becomes very difficult to schedule time. So uh, we had, 
difficulty scheduling time in the studio together. Uh, and then there was also um, not enough time, you know, to write more material. We'd been a little snobbish with the first album, our single, A Cool Dub. We didn't put it on there. We said, oh, people already have that. Why would you put that on the record and make them buy the same thing twice? You know, mm -hmm. I mean, we're just a bunch of art kids. And so uh, it was totally different with Chomp because we didn't have enough material and there was so much time that we put out two singles before it came out. And uh, those ended up on Chomp. <laughs> <laughs> there wasn't a lot of extra material, I think, uh, is what Michael has said, our yeah. basis. And so um, doing that, we were... Uh, doing even more touring. It was one month, we literally made a circle around the entire US. <laughs> and we had a booking agent um, who was really just someone, he wasn't a manager, he wasn't a decider. Um, we told them, you know, we wanna go here, we have these days open, uh, we need you to book. And he uh, took it on himself, um, to book us with U2 opening for them on their first U.S. tour. And Michael you know, really got into it with him. And um, he was like, you know, you really can't do stuff like this. This really isn't our audience. This arena type thing, this isn't, you know, exactly us. And uh, just to prevent this guy from having egg on his face, we agreed to do a couple of shows with them opening for them. And uh, at that point, the booking agent said to Michael, he said, well, if you want to do things like this, why are you in this business? And we were having all these people telling us, you need to do this, you need to do that, you need to do this. And we really only wanted to do things on our own terms. So it was, more increasing pressure from the outside than any internal strife within the band that led us to uh, deciding, let's, let's just quit, you know, we're still having fun, let's do it, you know, so uh, um, that's what we did. We went and um, for what we call Pilot One, uh, we performed uh, a show December 1st, 1983. I think that's, uh, I don't know if you have it in the UK, but that was put out a few years ago by Henry Ovings for Chunklet. Um, it's the entire live performance on two um, records. Right. And, and, and so, you know, then we quit. And you quit. <laughs> did you ever play any shows supporting you two, or did you? Yes, we did. We opened for them twice. Right. My God. It's amazing because you're. You know, you've got this amazing reputation, haven't you? Sort of, um, well, you've got an amazing history, actually, on, on so many fronts. But, you know, like having people like R.E.M., you know, sort of champion the band and then support, having you two, you know, supporting them as well. I mean, they're two of the biggest bands of modern time, aren't they? Yeah, and they're all super nice. I mean, we got along with them. Well, actually, our drummer spent a long time talking to Bono. Um, but my grandmother died that weekend, uh, that particular weekend we were playing. And I remember when I heard, I was like in this arena going, 
all over the place, just find, trying to find a telephone that I could call out on. And I couldn't ever find one. It was the next day at breakfast before I found one. Uh, so, you know, uh, you know, going out there on stage and opening for YouTube, they did like us. And I think they offered uh, for us to open the entire tour uh, for them. Um, but we just weren't into that. Look, here we are. Um, there's an arena full of kids that they've maybe heard one or two YouTube songs and Pylon is just totally outside of, you know, their uh, vision of music. They, they don't know anything. And so they're constantly yelling, get off the stage. We <laughs> want to hear you too. You too. Get them off the stage. And so it wasn't that, um, pleasant of an experience opening for them but they were very nice to us all of them were and uh I was real taken with how professional they were and I I loved how they sounded but um it just wasn't really our thing now later on when we got back together um after a few years um I'd actually had my first daughter and around 88 87 um they recorded our song crazy and uh they you know bill berry said you know they were just all these people were piling praise much deserved praise on rem and uh they were always deflecting it you know uh very sweet guys and bill berry said well we're not the greatest band in the world pylon is and one of them or a couple of them went and talked to Michael, the bassist. They said, look, the world might be ready for you now. Let's uh, think about getting back together. And so we did, but this time it was more business-like. That's what we call Pylon 2. Um, we uh, had a manager. <clears throat> We'd been all always self-managed before. Um, we had a road crew. Uh, we had a merchandiser you know all of that and so we opened for rem on the last leg of their green tour we also did some uh key shows with b52s up in the northeast and in canada so um you know it was pretty good we recorded one album um and uh we always felt like the next one we were going to record would be better um, but Randy had kind of an internal timeline, I think, for success. And he had uh, two young boys at that point, and it was very difficult for him to be on the road. Um, he decided to call it quits. We couldn't talk him out of it. And uh, we decided that the, uh, without all of the original members, that it wasn't Pylon. So we broke up again. <laughs> <laughs> And that's and that's the end of the that's kind of draws a line under that particular musical adventure. Yeah, like 1991. Mm-hmm. Um, then I became a registered nurse and uh, worked as a registered nurse for 21 years. And uh, toward you know, well, let's see, 2005. Uh, you know, not at the end of my nursing career, but uh, Randy came to us and he uh, separately talked to us and he said, I really miss you guys. <laughs> <laughs> I like to get back together and just play again. And uh, he uh, uh, 
talked to us and we were like, let's just do this for fun. Let's just play some shows for fun. Uh, so that's what we did uh, for about four years until he passed away in 2009 of a heart attack. Yes, God, that must have been the biggest shock of you. Well, you were a registered nurse, but. It was, and we'd, uh, I'd worked with them on the audio portion of doing some reissues. One thing we used this, uh, an excuse for, you know, making it, you know, more of a project was uh, um, the CD quality of uh, a compilation that was out. Our fans were very upset with, uh, it was called His, although a lot of them like it just because of the songs that's on it. And uh, it's just a joke because we never had a hit. Uh, it has all of her songs except for two or three. Um, which there just wasn't enough time to put them all on there. So I right. uh, had to decide to get rid of a couple. So um, yes. anyway, uh, we started gathering the stuff together to uh, reissue that. And um, Michael got a call from uh, BFA Records in New York. And they said, uh, we've never done a reissue, but we'd like to... Uh, make Paul on our first reissue. There are um, all these uh, younger bands uh, like LCD Sound System and whatnot. For years, LCD Sound System, we had no idea had been playing Paul on in the DJ set. And, uh, you know, some of our songs were popular um, and we had no idea. So we were like, well, that's good because we're talking about doing that very thing. So we reissued them. And we got to do some uh, fun shows. Uh, we flew into San Francisco and LA and then up to New York and we played Athens and Atlanta, you know, not a whole lot of touring, but uh, yes. we, had, we had some fun with it. You know, it was fun to practice. Well, absolutely. But you, but also apart from being you know, a registered nurse, you also had another musical project, the Super Cluster Band. Yes. Super cluster. So, so that, that's kind of, um, you think you managed to pack a lot in at this stage, don't you? Well, I, I like to keep busy, you know, <laughs> what can I say? It's uh, just part of my, uh, I'm not hyperactive or anything, but my brain is just always on. Um, well, when Paul and I got back together, um, I started having some songs coming into my head that were not pylon material. And I got a keyboard out and started, uh, you know, coming up with simple melodies to go along with these things. And I discovered uh, two women in Athens whom I really, really liked uh, what they were doing with their own projects. Uh, one of them was Hannah Jones, who had a project called New Sound of Numbers. And the other was Kay Stanton, the bass player for Casper and the Cookies. And I've seen them at a, something called Athens Pop Fest, which drew bands from, you know, indie bands from all over the world. And uh, these were two women for Athens. And they were very strong uh, people, um, had their own projects. And uh, I just, just loved what they were doing. I was like, well, I'm going to pick a dream team of musicians. <laughs> Excellent. You know what I mean? You know, you don't get to do this kind of stuff very no, often. No, absolutely. And so I, I wanted to have it, something that was like a cross between acoustic and electric um, instruments. My husband, Bob Pay, was in a band called The Squalls. 
but he also has a project which plays the music of Robert Burns once a year. Um, oh, nice. And bluegrass instruments. You yeah. know, one of the first years they did it, somebody from London was having one of those Burns nights and contacted him um, to get them to come and play. And then um, uh, they realized that they were actually based in the States and it would be impossible, you know, for them to fly all of them over to play this Burns night. Um, but they're, you know, they're great. And uh, so in that band, there was a, a mandolin player called Bill David, who also played with North Georgia Bluegrass. And uh, I had the drummer and uh, Randy, uh, the guitarist for Pylon, came on board with me. Uh, my younger daughter and one of her friends, uh, one of my younger daughter friends and my older daughter played cellos. So I got them out on some songs. And then I got Heather McIntosh. He's a cellist with the uh, Elephant Six Collective, who's on many, many projects, including, uh, you know, you'd have to look her up. She does uh, uh, film scores now. She's uh, studied at the UGA School of Music. And uh, then I had, uh, um, oh, I had all these guys who were from Olivia Tremor Control who came in and played. Oh, and, yes. and it was great, you know come in and make up the songs well I like this riff let's play it backwards you know and that <laughs> kind of thing which is always fun to do yes so absolutely. we did this and so it wasn't ever really meant to be anything but a, a recording project but the B-52s got wind of it and invited us out for like five or six days so you know uh we got to play some uh pretty incredible shows like we played wolf trap i mean i never thought i'd play wolf trap you know looking over there on the wall girl lives is autographed the wall you know and here we were you know <laughs> you know just a bunch of you know kids or whatever so we you know we managed to get most of an album recorded and it was coming about the same time that randy and i were also working on the uh uh chomp reissue for DFA and he passed away from the car wreck and it was really really hard to decide you know what to do to like even think about working on it for a while but then it became therapeutic I was like we got three more songs to do who can I get as the guitarist to step in his shoes so I uh, asked Bradford Cox from Deer Hunter he's a good friend uh he was the one that seemed the closest uh, to having uh, Randy's not exact style, but aesthetics about the way he played. And he'd, he'd also uh, recorded Cool. No, he'd done Cool live, and I'd met him. So I was like, I'm going to ask him. So we finished it up. And Jason E. Smith, uh, who's married to Kay Stanton, uh, and innocent Casper and the Cookies, he uh, was recording engineering mixing it i'm working with them and um he offered to become the guitarist and uh you know for some shows we were going to do and then we also brought in um brian Poole from of montreal and some other projects so it's kind of like a a low-key project but it has an all-star cast <laughs> yes absolutely God, that's <laughs> and, and so you know we got 2,000 ever made, uh, 
they're out there. Um, um, it wasn't ever like, it didn't ever get the uh, attention that uh, Pylon did or the type, you know, the number of followers, whatever, but people like it, uh, that like it, that know about it, I guess. And so then Supercluster just kind of drifted apart about uh, the end of 2012 and 2013. And uh, I was like, well, you know, um, at that point, I, I didn't really have any idea about anything I wanted to do. I was just, you know, uh, taking care of my mom, uh, who was living with us at that point. And uh, uh, my girls were older. They didn't need so much attention. And, you know, just working as a nurse. And uh, um, let's see, I guess about four years ago, Jason came to me and they had a, a, a thing that was going to be happening in Athens uh, that uh, a series of uh, shows and exhibits that showed the uh, uh, connection between the art and music scene in Athens between 1975 and 1985. And he said, well, Vanessa, I'm booking the 40 Watt Club. Um, you could come and do anything what you want that you want to do. Uh, you'll have, you know, you have 15 to 20 minutes. And I thought about it <coughs> and um, that's exactly the scene that Pylon came from. Yes. And, and I put all of that to rest, but I said, look, I'd really like to do some Pylon material. And he just about fell over. I said, you've got to help me get a band. And so he got his band, Casper and the Cookies, to back me up. Right. And so we played the show at the 40 Watt, and people just went bananas. Michael, the bassist for Pylon, came up and played one song with us. We did a side effects cover. Uh, and Paul Bouchard, uh, who had been Pylon's, uh, you know, sound person came and played drums. He was the original side effects and uh, people just loved it. And so I was like, I'm gonna put, you know, this is up on the shelf now, forget about it. <clears throat> and then a year later, um, Jason came to me again and he said, look, uh, we're gonna do this again, this Art Rocks Athens thing. Uh, again, but this year it's going to show a connection between, you know, the photography and the film of the era. So, um, he said, well, you do it again, but you'll have a lot more time. And uh, I was like, well, you'll have to get me a band together again. <laughs> and he said, well, my band to play with you. Um, we've got to learn the stuff. We need more stuff. But the problem is we don't have a drummer. So I said, well, I don't know any drummers. I mean, drummers are hard to find. You know, yes. you get eight or nine guitarists to a good drummer. Um, at that point, I didn't know anybody who was really worthy because uh, Curtis is so great. And uh, a few days later, I'm downtown Athens at Athfest. And uh, We Love Tractor, which is the Love Tractor spinoff, was playing. And um, there I am standing next to Curtis, the drummer for Pylon. <laughs> and 
and I look over at him and I say, hey, Curtis, uh, what are you doing? Uh, and blah, blah, blah. But, oh, I've got to go out of town. I, I don't know when I'll be back. You know, he works for the TV movie industry as someone who builds sets and, you know, does art direction and that type of thing. Mm. And so he can get, you know, he can get a call and he's gone for six months. So, <coughs> so uh, I said, well, well, who should I get? And uh, he looked up on the stage. He says, I think you should get that guy right up there. The guy who's playing drums. And I looked, uh, I didn't know him from Adam's house cat. I said, well, who is it? And I um, asked around and they said, oh, that's Joe Rowe. He's great. So uh, next time I practiced with Kay and Jason, I was about to tell him, I think I might have found somebody who would work, um, although I hadn't talked to him yet. And uh, Jason, uh, before I could say anything, he said, I've got us a drummer. And I said, well, well who did you get? And uh, he said, Joe Rowe. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, fantastic. That's amazing. And so, <laughs> it is amazing. And so um, he came in. I brought in a keyboardist who's a classical pianist at UGA. He's an old friend to just, you know, be the keyboardist. <clears throat> because on the second record, we have some keyboards and some interesting sounds, um, some of which were triggered by the noise gate. <clears throat> So we played again, and um, people just really loved it. And um, I was like, wow, you know, it was even better than the first time. And so, I, you know, I had that, well, that was fun, you know, let's move on with life kind of feeling. And then uh, a few weeks later, uh, Jason said, hey, how would you like to... Uh, go and play some shows in Atlanta and North Carolina. Our friend Dressy Bessie just called and said, uh, would you like to play some code bills? And so we did, and it was a lot of fun. And I was like, I can't believe people are paying me to do this. This is crazy. <clears throat> so um, from that, people realized that uh, there was a touring band that played pylon material and on. Uh, it's different from most tribute bands when the, um, you know, I'm the lead vocalist for both. <laughs> <laughs> yes, this is so true. we started, we started getting offers, you know, from all over the place. We uh, went to New York, we went to DC, we went to San Francisco, LA, Detroit, um, <clears throat> went to the Northwest, had never played there before, got to go to Portland and Seattle. And then last year, we were invited to perform at Primavera, and we got to play at Primavera. So I'd never been to Spain. Wow. But I, I kind of like the music. <laughs> yes. That's really good. God, that's been a hell of a journey, hasn't it? From that very early days. Of just yes, it of, has. That's one amazing story. And it's interesting that it's kind of, it's been there or thereabouts, bubbling away coming up occasionally to the surface and then dropping again and coming back. But now, yeah, so where are you now with it all? I mean, I know this year's not been great. Well, um, we played some shows uh, at the end of February before COVID hit uh, um, here in Athens and in Atlanta. We also uh, 
uh, the other band was the Bongos, who were old friends of mine from Hoboken, New Jersey. <clears throat> and we had just saved enough money to be able to go into the studio and uh, record. We have enough original material now uh, that we could put out an album. Uh, we did put out a single at the end of 2018 that really wasn't available until 2019. Yes. Um, messenger cliff notes and um wherever it got played people really seemed to like it um both sides got airplay um mostly on indie you know stations like yours um, yeah yes uh and community stations in the united states which remind me more of what uh college radio was back in the early 80s i think a lot of those same djs and whatnot have ended up there and a lot of college stations, uh, they've been taken over by, you know, networks or whatever. They sold their airspace to, uh, so you don't have that, uh, you know, spirit where the DJ would come in and just play whatever they wanted to off the top of their head. You know, that yes. kind of freestyling playing, you know. Mm -hmm. It's gone, isn't it? It's gone. So things are different, but you know, but still out there, there's still a lot of great DJs, the radio shows out there, but they're mostly uh, podcasts or community stations or, you know, whatnot. Yes. So, <clears throat> so does that mean that you're just kind of waiting <clears throat> going to the studio when it, there is the right time and being able to uh, record the new album? Yeah, we've got to figure out a way to rehearse and socially distance. Uh, you know, my my uh, doctor told me earlier this year, um, she kind of put the fear of God into me. She's like, Vanessa, I know you're a singer. You remember that choir over in Seattle or wherever it was. You know, half that choir got COVID. Singing is actually one of the most dangerous activities that you can do. Um, as far as uh, respiratory, <clears throat> and I'm in completely the wrong age group. <laughs> but who knows? You know, like a 90 year old can get it and they'll recover. Yes. It's like a little cold, and somebody else, uh, you know, 27 to get it and they die. It's like a crapshoot. So I really hope they come up with the vaccine and um, they find some way to stem the surge of it i just you know i i just wish that public health had not become a political football in my uh country i, I mean i don't know when science and public health uh became an issue that's a political issue because there's people that won't wear masks because uh I don't know. They think it's bad for you and it's encroaching on their rights and whatever. And they're not really thinking about the collective good, mm. which I'm sure they do in England, you know. <laughs> yeah, there's a little there's a little bit of, you know, awkwardness, I suppose. People sort of, you know, suddenly reading an awful lot into it. I mean, and and assuming that there's kind of some massive kind of conspiracy you know the conspiracy theorists are having a field day at the moment aren't they they're they're they're, they're running on steroids i think there's so many sort of weird ideas that um and i think you know it's a bit like when you you have a slightly paranoid friend and they just kind of can read so many things into everything and you know into spaceships and 
so much stuff you think oh wow so this has kind of helped them grab another thing to um think oh yes there's a conspiracy bill gates vaccines you know oh i don't know it all gets a bit crazy doesn't it it's a crazy world yeah yeah well you know when i became a nurse uh there was a much older nurse she had been a nurse for 42 years and um, we were having some super bugs pop up at that point, um, BRE and MRSA, a lot of uh, hospital inquired, acquired infections, uh, <clears throat> you know, AIDS, of course. And um, <clears throat> some of the new, newer nurses were very frightened and she just looked at them and said, look, every 10 years is something. Good old fashioned nursing care, isolation, you know, you know, protecting yourself, watching what you do, that is never going to go away because you live through to uh, working with TB patients, polio patients, and all these really virulent things. And uh, um, she was telling, you know, you've got to be safe. You've got to be smart. Um, but this is your job. You know, you're a nurse. This is what you have to do. You have to be careful. And so, um, you know, I was like, oh yeah, you know, went back, look, yeah, there has been something about every 10, 12, 15 years that uh, really frightens everybody. We have never, in our lifetimes, now my grandmothers, they did, experience the global pandemic. Mm. Um, my grandmother had a, sister that she talked about to her dying day he died at the end of october 1918 from the spanish flu yeah and that's when it came through you know and it was kind of like then it was very virulent that you didn't know who was going to die who was exposed and who would survive there's no rhyme or reason to it no this is true <clears throat> anyway so look You've still got to work out your rehearsals and um, uh, doing the new album. So, so just lastly, I mean, if you could have said something to an 18 year old self, like, you know, I have all these decades of experience and wisdom and ups and downs and all that kind of groovy stuff. If you, if you could have said something to, to them or yourself back then, I just wondered what your kind of bullet point would be or, or several bullet points would be. Um, just to say, oh, by the way, just keep your eye on this or oh, focus on that or don't focus on that yeah i you know i wish i could time travel but you know time is in layers it really is all here and around us if i could break through those layers and talk to my younger self um, i think i would give some um, advice about business uh, because i didn't care about it so much when i was younger but uh i say to the younger me Watch out for your business because if you don't, somebody's always willing to take care of that for you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and they are. And so that's what I would say. And I would say, just enjoy yourself, you know? Yes. It only gets, you only get to do this once. You know, you only get to do this once. So enjoy your life. And that's what I continue to do. Every day is a gift, you know. Our life is a gift. It's a miracle. It's a gift and a miracle. The likelihood of us being here is incredibly small. Tiny. 
<laughs> well, thanks for listening to my, you know, my stories and stuff. Yeah, you know. well, look, Vanessa, thank you ever so much. And I've been really enjoying sort of listening to the music and uh, yeah, it's been fantastic. And I'm just so pleased that you're still rocking and it's still going so well because I mean, you know, you're one of the great survivors in this. Well, thank you so much for saying that. I'm a survivor. Yes, I'm, I'm sure there's a song, isn't there? I will say. Oh, you know, whatever. I don't know. You know, just nobody, it's impossible to predict the past, just as impossible to predict the future. All we got is right now, right? And, you know, just have to do our best. Yes. With whatever yes. we got. And I've, I don't know if I'm fortunate or unfortunate, but most artists, you know, and I'm not the only artist in the world, but, you know, most of the ones that I've known, we're going to create regardless. Um, uh, it's, it's something you can do in your entire life. It's not something that's bound by some, uh, you know, ageism or whatever. Uh, nobody might not want to hear it. You know, I've been fortunate that people still want to hear it, but, you know, it's... You're going to do it anyway. Uh, so I'm just enjoying myself. Yeah, well, it's amazing. And that, dear listener, is the end of the interview. I know, you never thought it was going to finish. But anyway, it did in the end. And that was me, David Eastall, C86 Show, in conversation with Vanessa Briscoe Hay, one-time member of Cylon, also Supercluster. And now the Cylon reenactment society if you want to contact me for some random reason make it nice and positive uh, um, yes do it on yeah facebook instagram and uh what's the other one facebook instagram twitter c86 show just go there and uh, drop us a message also all these interviews have been archived you can find those on spotify itunes podbean it's that simple anyway have a great week stay safe <laughs>